Dante Stewart's debut memoir, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle, is a story of a young man's transformation as he grapples with the intersectionality of race, the sins of America, and the possibility of radical and necessary change within the Christian church. Stewart's willingness to expose his inner conflict with anti-blackness from his past set him on a metamorphic pilgrimage. Diving into works from James Baldwin, Bell Hooks, and June Jordan gave him the clarity and language to write this timely and poignant piece. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us on the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We're your hosts. My name's Denny. And I'm Veronica. And today, we have a very special guest. We're joined by none other than Dante Stewart. Dante Stewart is our book of the month for October and November uh, nonfiction pick. He is a speaker, a writer whose work in the areas of race, religion, and politics have been featured in on CNN and in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comment, and elsewhere. He received his BA in sociology from Clemson University and is currently studying at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much for being here today. We are thrilled and, and we are so happy that you are here to talk about your wonderful new piece. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am good. I'm doing good. It's so good to be with y'all. I'm very excited uh, about our conversation and really look forward to getting into it. We're gonna we about to get into it. We're about to get right. into it. <laughs> so I I um just want to you know, reiterate earlier uh, that we're very grateful for you uh, writing this book and uh, coming on to the podcast. This was one that I have been looking at for a very long time. And I was so grateful that we were able to um, schedule this, this interview with you today. And I'm going to let Denny take it away with our very first question of the evening. So let's, let's begin because I, when I was reading this book, I really identified on the subject of lying in order to fit in. Mm-hmm. I have a master's degree before on that. And eventually, you know, you believe that lie, right? But I'm mm-hmm. so thankful that I caught myself and have reformed myself because I saw the people around me um, where their whole lives were built on this lie. So mm-hmm. would you... Or what would you do or what is the best approach to help, you know, people of color to stop yourself mm. to get a place, mm. self-acceptance and love? Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, first of all, thank y'all uh, for, for bringing me on as well as, you know, reading my book with such care uh, and concern and just doing such a wonderful, close and constructive reading of my text. So that's first and foremost is just a, a hearty thank you for that, but also, you know, creating space, you know, to be able to talk about, you know, my work um, and, and things like that. So I, I think when I think about like this whole kind of metaphor of lying, like I, I felt like, you know, it served two purposes really in my book. Um, number one, I knew it would be a really important identifying marker uh, for so many of us. Uh, who are Black or persons of color in majority white spaces, whether we find ourselves in uh, majority white school spaces, um, civic institutions, religious institutions, as I did and so many others do, um, and and, and what that does to us. And so oftentimes, you know, like lying is a part of like the performance of our identity. Um, and, 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 and one of the things I wanted to be clear about was not like 
looking at lying as a morality as much as looking at lying as a metaphor. Uh, not simply saying, you know, hey, like someone is, 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 is telling an untruth in that sense, any kind of traditional, uh, if somebody calls it that traditional sense of the word, uh, but someone living, you know, in an untruth, particularly uh, in the untruth that me performing my identity, me acting in ways that make white people comfortable, me being in spaces that are close to whiteness means that I would be closer to acceptance or success. And so lying served that purpose, particularly as a way to identify um, the ways in which whiteness affects us, um, both in what it makes us become in those spaces in order for us to achieve a certain type of acclaim and acceptance and um, access uh, to, to so many things. Um, but also I think, I think lying can be uh, on the flip side about, you know, in some sense, what we do to survive. Uh, and so for me, it's not, I wasn't thinking even like trying to make it seem, seem as if uh, everybody who is in those kind of spaces are actively living this particularly dishonest life as much as sometimes some of us exist in those spaces where we just wanna simply escape and exist. Um, where I, I know so many people where um, who would go to Clemson and other schools to just simply go to school, um, who simply just want to not, you know, almost not, not necessarily like, like selling out or trying to be exploitive, you know, of the ways in which like the systems of, of, of our society, particularly as dominated by white people, oftentimes exploit those who are most silent um, and use them as weapons. So not that particular exploit, exploitation, but simply, you know, not really want to kind of deal with the stuff that's going on just because, you know, you already deal with it and you don't want to be consumed by it. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of complicate that narrative by, by, by using lying because, you know, in some sense, many of the characters in my text, whether it be me, whether it be others, you know, we all were almost like encircled by a certain type of lying in which like we perform certain identities in order to either evade stuff, mm. justify stuff or deny stuff. And so like, I think when, when we, and I'm very clear about we like us, when we read it, I feel like we'll resonate with that because so often we have inherited the script that in order for us to be successful, in order for our lives to matter, in order for us to lead, live meaningful lives, then we have to give white people our performance. And that particular performance is a dishonest one that simply lets white people believe that everything is okay. And that tells us that what we need to do is be as silent as possible, run high, jump fast, you know, make good grades and, and not make too much noise while we're in this space. So, or these spaces, so yeah. The black women in your family were extremely and continue to be, I'm sure, uh, instrumental as you went through this evolution of self. Will you talk to us about how your grandmother and your mother and your wife helped you meet yourself, your new self, at the intersection of blackness and Christianity as yeah. you went through what being American meant for you? Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody else actually asked me this, um, you know, asked me this question. I actually love talking about this question um, be, because... Um, uh, because not only because, you know, like you're, you you saw, you know, Black women uh, are, are very instrumental in my own kind of self-identity, um, but also, you know, I work in the world of literature, you know, and, and, and theology and, and, and theory. And one of the things that uh, I, I um, we, we did in class last semester in my Black Lit class was doing a close reading of uh, W.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, as well as uh, Richard Wright's native son. Um, and every other Friday, me and uh, my professor, Dr. Wright, uh, and another student uh, would get together for independent study and we would read critical essays on, um, on, on the particular text we would read. And in our reading of souls and in our reading of native son, uh, we wrestled with this question, what is the role of the black woman within the text? Uh, how does the black woman function as a symbol uh, and a signification? of how the boys of right thought about themselves, thought about women in the place of women in the world, uh, especially 
uh, as their lives took took form on the page. And one of the things that 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 many of the scholars noted was that the uh, Bois and Wright, you know, embodied such deeply both problematic and patriarchal uh, narratives regarding women's, particularly Black women's agency, autonomy, dignity, and their power. And so when I thought about my text, and when I thought about the ways in which, like, I changed, particularly um, going from my Black Pentecostal space to going into white spaces to back out those spaces and now being a minister in a predominantly Black church, uh, in a historically Black church, Black women have been um, such formative and shaping voices. Um, and that first and foremost starts with my wife. Many people get introduced to my beautiful wife in, in that text. Um, and, and, and you see the ways in which oftentimes, you know, as I write, I care more about what people thought than I did my Black wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 that, and, and, and that, you know, caused a lot of rifts, you know, in our relationship. Um, and, and, and also the ways in which like her and uh, others like Michaela uh, told me, you know, hey, you don't have a, you know, you don't got a damn thing off of black people. And I come home and, and, and complain to my wife and she's like, yo, you're always listening to other people when I'm telling you this the whole time. And so the way black women, you know, black women's role in my own story, particularly as I think about my grandma and my mama, when I did change, I was like, yo, like I needed to treat their stories uh, as Alice Walker did. So the way I wrote about black women was reminiscent. And I hope people felt that it was reminiscent uh, of, you know, someone who actually read Alice Walker. I want to, I wanted to be a type of person that people, when I, when they read my book, that they will understand like, okay, he probably read In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. He probably read The Color Purple. Uh, not, not like, yo, he definitely read this, but at least like they would be like, okay, he probably read this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wanted him to feel that way that I didn't collapse the story into simply either making me the hero in this story or secondly, thinking that my liberation and wholeness was simply tied to the resurrection or the embodiment of, of, of Black male power mm-hmm. um, and, and Black masculinist power. But I wanted something deeper, more visceral, more honest, having more flesh, as Toni Morrison writes about in Beloved uh, with Baby Suggs. I wanted, I wanted to have, you know, a certain type of fleshiness about my text in which, like, you were able to see me, uh, others, particularly Black women, in the ways in which, you know, I learned, I was criticized by, and but also, you know, deely loved by. Uh, black women beginning with my wife and then beyond but then also you know the way I end the book with 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 the black child the black girl you know and 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 try to in some sense weave a story whereby which and if she by the time she by the time I got done with my text if she would have as she did older read my text she will see something in my text that it will allow her to realize that, yo, she's even seen, inspired, and protected um, in the ways in which I try to, 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 to tell, you know, Black women's stories uh, in, my, in my text alongside my own stories in ways that, you know, Black women were not just, you know, subservient or sacrificial, uh, but they exist with a certain type of agency. They built worlds, uh, even in the midst of limitations, um, but also, you know, they are complex. Um, and I wanted my characters, you know, to be complex. And I speak of our lives as characters because in some sense, you know, we talk about memoir, you, you have to be, you have to, you know, you have to craft human stories. You can't have flat narratives. You have to craft human stories. And I think, you know, on that kind of personal level, that's how Black women, uh, you know, you know, really, you know, my wife and others really shame me. But also, you know, I wanted also like on a intellectual level, uh, and a theological level and a political level um, that I wanted to be able to call the names of Black women like Toni Morrison or Elizabeth Alexander or Alice Walker or M. Sean Copeland um, and others who, who uh, Black feminists and womanists who in some sense, um, you know, really helped me think about the Bible, think about the body, think about, you know, the land and this country, um, but also who really 
really, really, really helped me in thinking about how do I embody a certain type of liberative practice, uh, liberative practice when I think about what I wanted to embody and what I wanted to hold out for others. And that was, you know, healing and wholeness. So, yeah. Let me ask you this, because this just came to mind in regards mm-hmm. to Michaela. Um, since, you know, revealing that part within the beginning of your story, have you had the opportunity to talk to her after you coming through, you know, your 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 transformation and getting to uh, being able to like communicate that, you know, I was wrong and this is this is where you were and I'm and now I'm aligned with where you were at that moment. What was that conversation like if you were able to have that with her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Michaela, that's my homie. Like I talked to Michaela like maybe like a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's my homie. That's my sister. Um, you know, that's, that's my sister. When we was working at Enterprise, you know, we were, we were very, we all got very close. Um, you know, pretty much like a lot of people in, in, in kind of corporate life. And, you know, those of us who are, you know, black and persons of colors, uh, you know, we, we get real, we can get real close in, in, in corporate America. Cause we, we gripe about all the bull crap that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, the way we bond is in some sense, we, we creating communities of care. Uh, and so uh, that in some sense, you know, feels familiar enough and normal enough uh, that, that, that when we do have to intersect with the whiteness of, of corporate life, you know, we can at least have something to laugh about even as we complain about it. Mm-hmm. We can have this kind of inside joke, you know, that we all have or, or, or things like that, or even as we bump heads. You know, it does, it does can oftentimes, you know, feel like family, uh, even as it's as it is so kind of woven, uh, interwoven with such, you know, white and or patriarchal norms and narratives uh, within corporate life. Uh, but Michaela, that's that's my homie. And, and, and we, we what's so funny is that, like, you know, once you leave a, a, a job site and things like that, you know, you 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 kind of go your separate ways, and you y'all all built something, and and then you you keep in touch every now and then. But we actually all all of us we kept in touch pretty frequently, and it's kind of crazy having Michaela and my friend Nefertiti, my my best friend, um, you know, Nef, uh, even my wife, you know, who all my boy said, you know, and 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 others who all have been with me uh, in my own, you know, transformation, you know, they have, it's almost like things are happening and you don't even notice it mm-hmm. because you're so close to somebody, you know, so maybe somebody who wasn't close to me would be like, oh my God, like what happened? Um, and, and that would be a story there, but, but, uh, but those and others, you know, were so close to me that this, this process was, was a gradual, but like, and gradual and not so subtle but also like like it wasn't just like boom boom it was just like eh, like like ascending to where you know I'm reading differently I'm learning differently and things like that but Michaela is very proud of me um uh, as are others uh for the ways in which like even when you know I became very defensive in the ways that they criticized me um you know I, I'm very thankful that in those moments of life, even if it took me a little while, you know, I did have a certain type of maturity to be able to think through like what others, you know, what Michaela, what my wife, uh, what others were saying to be able to realize that, yo, like what I'm becoming um, is not just harmful to me. And oftentimes we're oblivious to the to self-harm um, and, we, and, and we become a little less oblivious when we are able to see ourselves through the eyes of others. Um, and, and if we harm ourselves, then, then, then more times than not, we're going to be harmful to others because we believe that the way we relate to others is simply through a standpoint of insecurity and fear, whereby which we believe when they critique us, mm-hmm. that it's taking something away from us that we believe we deserve or believe it's ours, rather than realizing that, you know, this person if indeed we have history, if indeed we have built trust, if indeed we have built respect and compassion, um, then they have they they do have my 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 or what I represent best interest in heart uh, and in mind. And so, like when my friends see me change, a lot of them are very proud because they understand that changing is always hard. Um, you know, it's always incredibly difficult. Um, to to become a different person. It's a process. 
it's a long process. You know, it, it, it takes investment, both, you know, financial investment, especially starting talking about many people oftentimes who, who have to give up more than me. You have to think about how do I start my life over when my life has been built in an institution that does not see me as equal a human. Yes. So how do I think about my identity when I'm 40, 41, 42, 43, and now that I've been built up in this institution, I got multiple, I, I got, I got multiple kind of roles in this place. And I got, a, I got a partner, I have children, or I may be single uh, or, 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 or whatnot. And I'm like, oh man, I realize like these white folk only want to kind of have me around in so much as I build their institution, make them more comfortable, make everything more marketable. And then when you come in contact with the ways in which uh, white supremacy is very woven both into that institution and into individual ideologies, when you come in contact with that, then oftentimes those catalytic moments represent uh, a big time of confusion for many people who have blossomed in their 20s and their 30s and now they are in their 40s and now they have to start over again. Um, and so change is very courageous and some people change and are willing to start over, but some people kind of remain in those spaces um, and, and kind of deal with the, 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 the ongoing depression um, that comes alongside what does it mean to exist in traumatic environments with, with no alternatives? Uh, and, and have to continue to perform for people who have no desire that you be set free, um, you know, who believe, who, who believe, who simply believe that your presence is an affirmation of the morality and the goodness of the space. Uh, so what do you do when those people are confused about what they want for you, but you're also confused about yourself and your future? So... Yeah, many people, uh, you know, struggle to change. Um, and, and I'm thankful that, you know, I had the people around me to help me change. Um, it took many people, you know, to help me change. It was not a singular endeavor. I, I didn't wake up in the morning, uh, post Alton Sterling, uh, Philando Castile and Donald Trump happening, simply waking up realizing that I was a revolutionary. You know, I was made a revolutionary, you know, through many trials and tribulations, through much wrestling, through community, through love, um, or, or, or whatnot, and, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Michaela is definitely my friend, and she's very happy, you know, that I change. Um, and she's actually incredibly happy that, you know, I wrote this story of change within a book uh, to share that story with the world. Speaking of change, um... What was the transition like when you and your wife decided to um, leave that white church? Um, what was the conversation, if any, that she had with the leadership? Did you have to reveal mm. to them the reasons why it's time for you to part ways with that? Issue? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. That is a great question that nobody asked it. Um, and I've had good many conversations and nobody really asked about that. Um so up until the point of leaving, we, me and the leadership had so many hard conversations. Um, you know, I was actually leading a, a, a community group, a small group, a little discipleship group um, through a book on race written by a white man. Um, and at that moment, I was somebody who was just simply black, you know, who I was black. You know, but I had I hadn't dealt with you know black history, black culture, black literature, black religion. You know, I was just a black athlete who was charismatic and 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 nice and a nice dude. Uh, so they made me incredible marketable, marketable, and and set me up as an expert, uh, uh, particularly over uh, uh, my friend Neff, who who especially at that moment and even now who's brilliant and light years ahead of me, you know, when it comes to thinking and critical analysis. And she was in that space with me and she should have got the mic, you know, but, you know, because of their ideologies about gender, um, you know, they put me, they, they, they put me up there. And so when, when, when I started, you know, getting in contact with uh, white people on the most intimate levels around conversation regarding race and history, uh, I started to see a part of white people that many of us, you know, and kind of in the grand scheme of things, we, we come in contact with white people in public. There's a difference intersecting with white lives in private. Mm. Uh, you, you, you see what Kiese, you know, talks about when he, when he writes about the worst of white folk, um, you know, and, and that is, I would say, many to the majority of them. 
um, that that the worst of white folk oftentimes, you know, are okay, you know, having us in the room. You know, they're a little less okay with actually giving us the mic when we're there. Um, you know, giving us the ability to make the decisions regarding the the shaping of the institution, the shaping of the group, uh, and things like that. So you can imagine, you know, that the the tension that I, as a young um, athletic, you know, black dude, you know, was trained at predominantly white institutions, who, you know, was now hooked up in white evangelical institutions. And, and now having to deal with, you know, white people going through Donald, going through the election who I was, you know, I wasn't somebody who was like super concerned about the election or super concerned about all of this. You know, it was almost like a tension and a pulling, but it was really my wife. It was really jazz, like jazz literally, you know, jazz literally opened my eyes to so much where like for me, where I would have just kind of brushed things off about what white people did and what white people said. And maybe at some point, at some certain points, I was angry about it and confused about it. You know, she both was a parameter for 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 kind of, you know, my experiences and, and an interpreter for my experiences. Uh, but also she was she she kind of, you know, helped me you know, she, she, she helped me get tired, you know, and, and things like that and get fed up in, in, in all the right ways. Um, and, and then it was, it was through, you know, those situations and, and her and others, you know, that made me ask better questions. I mean, when I started to ask better questions of my group, when I started to ask better questions of myself, when I started to ask better questions of the leadership, instead of responding and embrace to a family who has given you what you never deserve. And that was the trust of caring for our humanity. Mm. White, white people don't deserve that. No. They neither, they, they, they don't deserve our trust with caring for our humanity, for our children and our future. Uh, they, they have proven quite destructive uh, with 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 as as the as the kind of as the old kind of classical literature would say with that pearl of great price you know our lives mm -hmm. uh, they 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 have proven uh, if indeed one can use a metaphor pearl of great price that is in some sense you know the logics of whiteness it's indexed by this idea of this is a prize that must bring some type of economic value. The pearl, the pearl does not exist simply uh, in beauty because it is in their imagination, but the pearl is indexed by this idea of being of great price and great value that will bring financial power to that person who can hold it in their hands. And so people who think about that in this kind of capitalist exploitation, exploitive way, do not deserve our humanity because they will always utilize our humanity to build their wealth, to build their power, to build their resources, and do, and do it always at the expense of our healing and our wholeness. And so, you know, when I started to ask these questions, you know, uh, instead of responding with care and concern, you know, white people responded how white people do. Um, and in, in both in apathy and hostility. And over time, you know, I started to read different. I started to act different. I started to talk different. I started, you know, as I developed language from books, you know, it gave me, you know, there's nothing like, you know, having, there's nothing like being able to take this into a conversation, um, you know, because you know, you know, history, you know, theory, you know, theology, you know, dates, you know, people, you know, context, you know, you know it all, you know, you know, you know, sociology, you understand how, you know, the world works. And when I think about that, that kind of working knowledge, when you have that, you know, not perfect knowledge, but working knowledge uh, of history and traditions and, and, and context and, and things like that and alternatives, um, then you're be better able to not just talk about the experience of being a marginalized person within a dominant space, particularly spaces that are white and or evangelical or conservative or male dominated, um, you know, and, and the ways in which those identities can be taken on, not just simply by white people, but we as well can embody uh, the same type of logics of whiteness, uh, where we're bound to, you know, male power, patriarchy, uh, sexism, homophobia, 
arrogance, insecurity, fear, control, and power, and things like that. And so when you get that language, you, you're not able just to talk about your experience as a marginalized voice, you know, but you can talk, and I'm going to use this word very loosely, um, because I don't want to sound elitist in a sense, uh, but you are able to talk about your experience in very educated ways. Uh, and when I say educated ways, I don't simply mean that you know, kind of deciphering the world and our experiences into educated and non-educated. I'm just simply meaning you have the critical framework that is a part of a certain type of being educated um, and being enlightened um, and understanding and well-reasoned and well-argued mm -hmm. as to why what is happening right now is not just simply, you know, does not feel good, uh, but it is actually destructive and it is actually uh, dishonest, dehumanizing, and it dispossesses us of that which God has given us, and that is our humanity, mm -hmm. and that which we know we possess of ourselves, and that is our creativity, and that which we know can happen in the world, and that is our equality. And so when we when I went into those meetings, um, you know, those months went by, and I'm talking and wrestling and thinking. Um, and I'm becoming a different person. I really am. You know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I was firing off on everybody. Uh, you know, I was, I was a ticking time bomb because, you know, I, through my wife and others and through reading, I started to realize that I had become a weapon. I become so dis dis destructive um, and I gave it justification. So I felt like uh, as a responsibility to myself and to others, especially in the ways that I hurt them, I felt a responsibility, not just simply to try and read about change, but to embody the change that I read about. And so that meant that I had to move differently with these people. I had to talk differently. I had to think differently. You know, I wasn't the savior, you know, of myself or of others, but I can be somebody who represents and stand in solidarity. Mm -hmm. So, and so there's a difference, you know, I can't save anyone, but I can't stand in solidarity with you. And whenever I'm in spaces of power, you know, I can represent, you know, your, I can bring your voice with me um, to, to speak of uh, how Dr. Janika Walker Barnes talks about in her incredible book. Um, I can bring their voices with me. And so, you know, we, as we started to talk, leader, the leaders, you know, started to blame me for my situation. I became the angry black dude, you know, and I was very angry um, and I had very good reason to be angry. Um, and things like that. So when we was transitioning out, um, it was a very incredibly tough situation as well, you know, because you bet your life with these people and then now you see them for who they are. It's a very disorienting process, um, you know, and, and, and then you need an alternative. Um, and, and over time, we found that alternative. And this is how I think, you know, bitterness set, set in. You know, bitterness set in when, when we don't have no alternatives uh, and we're just simply reminded of what people thought about us, what they did to us, what they tried to make us, uh, rather than having that alternative beyond their logics, beyond the institutions, to see the ways in which we've made ourselves, what we've created in the world, the way we've built the world, the way we've imagined ourselves and named ourselves and act out of our own agency uh, to create something that's sustainable and that's much more healthier than those environments I came, we oftentimes come from. So yes, it was incredibly hard. It was a messy process, um, but I'm glad I got. I'm, I'm glad I got free, or we got free in a sense, mm -hmm. and others got free. Um, but it, it definitely was not a. It, it was definitely a freedom at a high cost, um, especially facing, you know, white folk and the ways in which they hated facing them on sales. Everything you just said reminded me of uh, when I used to work. I used to work at a at a high school as a librarian, but before I became a librarian, I was the assistant to a bookkeeper. And I'll never forget walking into her office the day after the election in 2016, uh, when the election was announced in November. And, you know, white woman who's the, the bookkeeper of a predominantly white uh, school and, um, you're walking in and you think that, okay, I've built this relationship up with this woman mm -hmm. for almost a year. And, and you're having this feeling of like, okay, this is a safe space. We come in, we talk about different things. She's my elder, you know, there's respect there that, that's 
you know, definitely accounted for. And then coming in and having someone walk into the office and mm-hmm. say, you know, ask, simply ask her, like, did you see the results last night? And we've never had a conversation about politics mm-hmm. and her just being like, yes, so excited. And is in that moment where you, it's like a, you hear a glass break and mm-hmm. you're the space that you thought was safe is not a safe space. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, watch what you say and what you do because you don't know how how that will be used later mm-hmm. on. And so, you know, now in 2021, we find ourselves in living in the aftermath of the Make America Great Again era. And Trump's mm-hmm. campaign slogan, which called for white America to return to a time where white supremacy was king and marginalized people could be refused the basic necessities of life. And, you know, to mm-hmm. be like, this is an ongoing thing. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It never, there never came an end. We're still dealing mm-hmm. with it. But in your book, you talk about how the idea of nostalgia belongs to white people. Allowing them to utilize white supremacy to continue with the erasure in those communities, especially those of Black people. How do we prevent this disease from pouring into our own communities to ensure that anti-Blackness no longer prevails while centering ourselves within a true depiction of nostalgia? Mm, That's so good. Thank you. Incredible question. Um, I, I don't. I don't think there's going to be a point in time where anti-blackness does not exist uh, within our communities. Or if 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 we are find, to find different ways to think about anti-blackness, you know, beyond simply black communities, um, in in ways in which any marginalized, historically uh, and culturally marginalized group. Um, have members of their uh, demographic uh, who serve the, the the needs and the the kind of ideologies of the powerful rather than their people. Uh, that will always exist. That's just a common thread woven throughout history. Um, and that is a mechanism by which those in power maintain their power either by way of uh, utilizing and exploit some, exploiting someone within the community um, to, to cause confusion and distraction. Um, anytime we've had liberative new movements as people who have been historically marginalized, um, there have always been uh, those uh, either who have been placed there or those who by choice, uh, you know, really, really, really in some sense, you know, fall for the bait and believe that, you know, those things that will make them matter uh, is is ultimately in the hands of the powerful, um, and so I think I think one of the ways, uh, if I can think about a think about this through my own text and through a quote, that we can in some sense uh, ensure might not be the right word because I don't know if in, in necessarily if we can ensure because when I think about when you think about my mom and my grandma and them, you know they had a certain type of consciousness about themselves. That you know, I as the main character of the text end up at a white space in white churches. So, you know, I don't know if we can think about you know ensuring in, in a sense or, or, or whatnot to ensure like anti-blackness or or anti whoever we are in our own uh, personal lived experiences um, and ways that devalue us. I don't know if we can ensure as much as we can expose. Um, how can we expose ourselves? Um, to the ways in which oftentimes we can devalue ourselves and what is, you know, the type of narratives and stories and frameworks we need, you know, uh, to help us realize when we are devaluing ourselves um, and when we're not and how do we, you know, you know, in some sense, like close the gap of that margin. To where like we're not just constantly, you know, either devaluing ourselves uh, or, or having times where we're devaluing ourselves and valuing ourselves. So code switching, you know, devaluing ourselves or, you know, when we're just being ordinary, valuing ourselves, you know, uh, uh, performing our literature, our, our, our embracing our culture and context, valuing ourselves, oftentimes assimilating um, into other you know, dominant forms of being together, 
you know, devaluing ourselves. So how can we kind of, you know, bridge that margin to where we just being ordinary um, and <laughs> embracing ourselves without feeling like we have to prove ourselves in order to see that, to say that we're mat we matter. And the way that we, in which I thought about this is, 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 is likened to um, this quote from June Jordan, um, who is probably one of my absolute favorite just, I mean, she is, uh, she's brilliant. Uh, June Jordan is brilliant. Um, and, and that just, you know, uh, I, I just love June Jordan. And, and she has a, um, she has a quote in, in, in one of her essays in the book, Some of Us Did Not Die, where she's talking about, she, she wonders this question, uh, where is the love? And it was in the context of the 1978 National Black Writers Conference at Howard University, uh, in which she did this, this kind of intersection of blackness and, and feminism um, uh, was, was being talked about and, and, and which in some sense that, that, that talk that she gave uh, was later turned into the article, Where's the Love Inside of Essence magazine. And one of the things I will never forget her saying is that she said that I am black, you know, and, and I am feminist. And she says, and what that means to me being a feminist is, is much the same as the meaning of the fact that I am black. It means that I must undertake to love myself and respect myself as though my very life depends on self-love and self-respect. It means that I must everlastingly seek to cleanse myself of the hatred and the contempt that surrounds and permeates my identity as a woman and as a black human being in this particular world of ours. It means that the achievement of self-love and self-respect will require an inordinate hourly vigilance and that I am entering my soul into a struggle that will most certainly transform the experience of all peoples of the earth as no other movement can. In fact, hope to claim because the movement into self-love, self-respect and self-determination is the movement now galvanizing the true, the unarguable majority of human beings everywhere. And so I think about that June Jordan quote. And when I think about, you know, realizing that we can't really ensure that we love ourselves or that our children or that our friends will love themselves in ways that are not harmful to us, that are not performative, you know, for white folk uh, or those in power that's not uh, frigid or, or, or rigid in some sense in ways that, it's, that it doesn't like help us expand those identities, you know, because in some sense, each one of us uh, in, in, a, in a very real way uh, on a kind of existential level are living in the aspora. Uh, each one of us are mig migrant people. Uh, so some of us, whether our journeys have led us from Black rural South uh, to California and back to the South again, like me and my wife or Maybe our journeys led us from California to New York, or maybe our journeys led us from, you know, one sector of society to the next. Uh, maybe our journeys led us from one community to another community, one continent to another continent. Uh, maybe, maybe those journeys, you know, went from one street to the next. Uh, each one of us as human beings and the ways in which our lives are taking form are migrant people. And that means that we take on identities and expressions and ideologies uh, you know, in some sense, wherever we go, you know, there's always kind of the expansion of the experience and the ways in which I name and see and act within the world. And so as a human being, as June Jordan would say, you know, we always need to kind of be expanding our ability to embrace ourselves and love ourselves. And I think that's how we expose ourselves to the ways in which we do not love ourselves and do not respect ourselves. So one simple way, you know, when I think about you know, literature, literature, black, that's why I love black literature so much is because there's nothing like being able to read something from Toni Morrison or being able to read something from June Jordan or being able to read something from James Baldwin or being able to read something from Tony K. Bambara or like the contemporary black tradition of, of Jasmine Ward and Kiesi Lehman and, 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 and Robert Jones and Disha Filio and, and Mateo and, and, and Jason and, and, and Tressie, 
just all these, I'm looking at my desk and I got all Fair Jasmine Griffin and Tarana Burke and Brittany Cooper and Ashley Ford and Jelani Cobb and Keisha Blaine and Derrick Purnell and Maurice Ruffin. Just all these brilliant, brilliant black voices. One no more. Bell Hooks. You know, who else? I mean, N.K. Jameson and Gail Jones. Like, there's so many brilliant, brilliant black voices um, that, 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 that are around that, that, you know, help us with self-love and self-respect first and foremost by allowing us to reclaim our identity, being able to reclaim the sacredness of it, the usefulness of our identity, being able to, to claim the complexity of our identity and being honest about the ways in which we become either the best of us or the worst of us. Mm -hmm. um, it allows us to reclaim that identity, but it also allows us to be able to realize our own power in telling our own stories. Um, that as Terion Williamson, the Black Feminist writes, she says that Black world making, that the worlds that Black people make, or as Elizabeth Alexander writes in the Black interior, uh, that, that we must envision what we're not meant to envision. And in some sense, that's the Black world, you know, uh, the way we've made the world. She says, Terion Williamson says, as that world making is as much a starting point for thinking about life as any other place. Uh, so I'm liking back to that, that old school thing. Who told you your hair was bad? Who told you your skin was bad? Who told you your art was bad? Who told you that? You know, uh, sometimes we tell ourselves that, mm. you know, because we have believes a lie. And so when, when, when we answer that question back to the question asker, we can say not only have the white world told us, but oftentimes our own world told us that. Mm. And so we need to do a better job as human beings, as people, exposing our children, exposing our friends, exposing ourselves to our own literature, to our own art, so that when you go into these spaces, you realize that you already somebody, you don't got to prove yourself to these people who are just simply going to exploit you for what they can gain, and rather than love you and allow you to express your humanity to the fullest, when you go into these spaces, you won't be just simply tap dancing and performing for them so that they can become more marketable as an environment, but you can be a free person no matter where you go. You don't have to, you, you, you can exist in that space. There's a way you can exist in that space. Yeah. Now, that's mighty hard. You know, it's mighty hard. You know, it's difficult uh, because in some sense, you're, in some sense, the space going to look at you in a transactional way. And in some sense, you know, all of our spaces are transactional in, 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 in many ways. But when you're talking about in white social space, that type of transaction is a little bit, uh, you know, it, a lot more bounce checks. You know, in that type of transaction, you know, you know, there's a lot of more overdrafts in that type yeah. of transaction than than our own communities. You know, our own community is going to take stuff from you, but make you feel bad, or make you angry, uncomfortable. You know, but your your experience of overdrafting, you know, you can find those kind of spaces. You know, in that that are alternative to, to even simply in I'm thinking about black space and the way I wrote my book that talking about masculinity and patriarchy and things like that and the ways in which you know those who are black LGBTQ are often you know inside of the black community are often those bodies as I write who who we learn which are meant to be hated rather than those bodies that are meant to be loved um, and that as as I I'm gonna say that I'll let people read that. Uh, Cause that was kind of a really good line. I was about to kind of give away a really good line. So I'm not going to give away. I'll let people experience that line. But, get the book, y'all. Get the book. But I, I, I do think, you know, how do we kind of expose that? You know, I think, I think we got to go back to our literature. We got to go back within ourselves. Um, and I think also, you know, we got to reclaim identity. Um, uh, and, and we have to realize, you know, to use this word, um, you, you know, as, as um, you know, uh, Trisha Hill Collins does a really good job of this uh, in Black Feminist Thoughts, um, we, we have to develop alternative epistemologies, ways of knowing, being in the world, thinking about as um, Emily Towns writes in, in, in Womanist Ethics and the, the Cultural Production of Evil, where she talks about how Toni Morrison uh, says that, you know, that that peace, uh, and we all looking for peace, aren't we? We're in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, many of us have lost our jobs. Many of us have, you know, been forced to deal with what does it mean to go to work when you don't feel like going to work, when when you're an essential worker and so much as you're, you're the first person there, last person to leave, and, la and the person that's most underpaid and underappreciated. 
You know, we, we dealt with police violence and police terror and the inability to reform policing in this country uh, that Derricka writes so brilliantly about in her book, Becoming Abolitionist. Uh, we have seen young children have to grow up too quickly. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, those who are LGBTQ uh, who have been murdered and, 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 and abused and, 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 and many have given justification for that abuse and that marginalization. Uh, we, we have seen, you know, January 6th and a, and a coup against the government. And now months later, uh, somebody like our dear sister Connelly's Rice asking us to move on, mm -hmm. you know, and, th and things like that. You know, Tony Morrison uh, would suggest that, yeah, all of us want a little bit of peace in the midst of that. You know, you start thinking about Breonna Taylor and Micaiah Bryan and George Floyd and Dante Wright and Ahmaud Arbery and more and things like that. You need a little bit of peace. Um, but Tony says, you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, Emily Towns utilizing Tony, Tony's work, uh, uh, she says, you know, Tony says, you know, that that peace is not the absence of trouble. And I'm quoting her loosely, you know, peace is not the absence, you know, of trouble. It is not the the absence of, of, of struggle in a sense. It's, it's not the absence, you know, of, of war, or is it simply, you know, at the mercy, as she writes, of history's rule, um, nor is it just simply passive surrender. Uh, just let it be what it is, you know, let things go on as they go on. Tony suggests that, you know, peace that you're looking for um, is not that, but the peace that I am thinking about, she writes, is the dance of an open mind when it engages another equally open one. And I think about like this type of exposure, we need to be able to be open and utilize our minds and think, feel with our minds, as one minister would say, think with our bodies. Feel with our minds, think with our bodies, develop other ways of knowing and producing knowledge so that we would experience peace and wholeness and liberation and joy. And I think that that's a community endeavor. It takes each one of us being willing to reclaim our identities and our stories, go back to the places that we came from, take the good, criticize the bad, deconstruct terrible narratives, embrace the better, and in some sense, dance together in a certain type of openness so that we develop better ways of being, better ways of knowing, better ways of understanding, better ways of performing. So yeah. You have spoken of, you know, the greats um, in black literature, like Baldwin, Bell Hooks, even Martin Luther mm -hmm. King, um, and so much, so much more. Um, and these people have kind of guided you into writing into your own work. Um, so mm -hmm. with you, how do you want your readers to read digest and view this piece of art that you have created and what is it to be in this literary like lineage of like yeah. like i was telling veronica you know every generation has their own like greats and like yeah. you, are in, you are in our generation like to us oh well, well number one thank you um you know thank you for the affirmation because you know we those of us, you know, who are often in that space of creating things in public, you know, when 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 things happen we, that you celebrate, you know, oftentimes, you know, you can kind of you're in that creative high, mm. and you come back back down. You're human, and 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 every single last one of us human beings uh, need affirmation. Um, and 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 James Baldwin, when he got toward the end of his life, you know, we kind of talk about Baldwin now, looking back. Uh, but thinking about Baldwin during that moment, Baldwin went through hard, hard years later in life, the lack of affirmation of his brilliance, um, lack of affirmation, you know, of his creativity, you know, and, 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 and some could suggest uh, that, that Baldwin didn't simply die of cancer, Baldwin died with a broken heart. Mm. Um, and, 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 and so many of us who create, um, you know, oftentimes broken um, and need that affirmation. So thank you for that. Um, and, and, and I do, I'm grateful that, that, that you view me that way, you know, but also, 
you know, I'm just getting started in the sense that, that, that like, I feel like there's so many brilliant, brilliant, incredible writers that I'm like, you know, in our generation that I'm like, yo, those are my inspirations. Like, 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 I wish I could write as good as them. I wish I can think as creative as them. I mean, I believe that someday I will, you know, as I mature, I'm young, I'm 29 years old. So, you know, I'm just getting, I'm just getting started. Uh, but I am indeed grateful, um, you know, that you, that you affirm that and notice that and, and, and things like that. And, and that's really, that's really good. So to the question of the, the, the kind of importance of this literary tradition and, and even the place they hold in my work, um, I was talking to Kiese the other, the other day as we were doing our event together and, and he was like, you know, the, your book is like a reading list. <laughs> you know, you, you, you weave so much literature uh, within within your book, and I and I, and I was I laughed, and I was like, yeah, because you know I want I want people to read my story, you know, but I don't just want people to walk away with my story alone. Um, you know, any good book, I believe, um, especially when you're talking about the genre of memoir, um, you know, it, it should you know introduce you not just simply uh, to someone's story, but it should be able to weave you know, other people into how you think about your narrative, you know, whatever way, not just saying, you know, you got to be like, yo, so Bell Hook said, in a just kind of academic way, um, but you can do it as Kiese did in, in, in Heavy or the way Jasmine Ward did it in Men We Read or Darnell Moore did it in No Ashes in the Fire. You weave, you weave and you creatively allow this literature to permeate from your text. Um, so, so many Black writers um, that, that I list, I wanted people to walk away and be like, okay, I need to get that book by now. Um, if this is a book that he, that helped him, then maybe this is a book that can help me, um, you know, and things like that. So I wanted to create something like that, but also, you know, I mean, I wanted to be a part of a noticeable tradition that when people read my text, I wanted them to feel the many black writers that I come from. So like, I wanted them to feel the honesty, the vulnerability, um, of, of heavy, you know, I wanted them to feel the language of heavy. Um, I wanted them to feel, uh, you know, the ways in which Mateo and Black Buck uh, uh, makes you laugh. Like, I mean, he, like, like the ability to laugh because something is so familiar. Um, I wanted the complexity of our humanity that Jasmine Ward so beautifully writes about and then we read. But I also wanted to write something that's like Disha Filiard's during uh, Secret Lives of Church Ladies that allow you to go into the secret spaces of our humanity and, I, and at the intersections of gender and sexuality in the church. Um, but that's not all I wanted you to do. I wanted you to, to be introduced to Bell Hooks and, and, and Salvation and Black People in Love and the ways in which I tried to weave this kind of deconstructionist ideology you know, and decolonizing our minds and our performances of our identity uh, that Bell Hook so beautifully writes about, you know, but I didn't just want that, you know, I wanted, I, I wanted you to feel, you know, the, 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 the care and concern with young people's stories that Jason Reynolds write with, um, that I tried to do when I talked about my students. Um, but that's not all I want you to get. I want you to get the kind of intimate ways Baldwin talked to his nephew in, in, in the fire next time and the way he gestures towards the sermon and the epistolatory form mm -hmm. um, at the back end of the fire next time. But also, you know, I wanted you to experience paradise from Morrison and Beloved and the beautiful worlds in which she created for Black people to dance in in the midst of it being a horror film. Uh, you know, you know, there's, there's, this book is part horror as well as is Beloved. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted, once people kind of left my text, um, I wanted them to be able to say like, that dude is a part of a noticeable tradition. And that tradition weaves how he thinks about himself. And therefore I, as a person walking away, should, if I'm black, you know, I should be able to, you know, and I think all people can do this, but particularly those who are black, I uh, should be able to, you know, lean into our literature. But those who are not black, but uh, uh, exist, you know, the spectrum of, you know, identities, um, you know, regarding race and gender and sexuality, et cetera, and, and religion. You know, be able to lean on your own stories. What's the canon that comes from your narrative? Mm. You know, this is my canon, you know, and of course, 
you know, I want to understand your canon. And, and we kind of create a better imagination and a better world together as we allow our canons to converse with one another, right. you know, and, and help us understand one another and take on better ways of being together. And so like Black Lit, and Black Lit in my text, you know, I really wanted to do that. I wanted something that was beautifully Black, but also I wanted it to be humbly Christian because I'm a minister. I'm in seminary, I'm in divinity school, um, you know, and, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm existing at the intersection. You know, I'm, I'm, I love the church. You know, the church is terrible <laughs> in many ways, yeah. you know, but the church, the church has formed me and I have chosen and as a person, not to be cut off, as Dr. Renita Williams says, is to not be cut off from this conversation, you know, to not be cut off from the many people that also must get free. And so I wanted to do this also as someone who is writing this text that's really wrestling with, you know, our faith and the ways in which faith uh, cannot be a space of liberation, can, but can be a reminder of loss. And as we live in the tension of that loss, that we try to inch toward liberation and wholeness, even in the midst of it. And so, you know, I wanted to be a part of that noticeable tradition, but also I wanted to kind of say, I love the Bible, but I also love Black literature. And both of them have something beautiful and sacred and holy to tell me. And I think they have something beautiful, holy and sacred to tell others, but also whatever sacred text others bring to the table, what are, what, what are the literary canon uh, that, that, that people bring to the table, I'm willing to and want to receive that as well as a part of my story to help me become more mature, more mature and more loving. And so, yeah, that's probably the way I would think about that and how Black literature forms me and, and in some sense why I did it that way um, and what I kind of intended people to walk away with. Our, our last question is a question that we ask everybody on the show. And... Um, when we asked it to Disha at the start of the year, she mm -hmm. altered it. So we give people two options. We always want to know, and you, you ran through a list already, but we want to know what are your top five books of all time or what are the top five books that you are currently excited about that you want people to go? Yeah. With? Okay. That's tough because... I don't know. I don't know if I have like a top five all time. Like that's that's just really hard. Now we we always <laughs> you know let people know as hard as this is, the people who are listening know that you yeah, might wake impossible. up tomorrow morning yeah. and you just have a different say, answer. Yeah, have a different list. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'll kind of I'll kind of say I'll kind of do like the books that I'm excited about. Um. Let's see. I mean, I got them all on my desk. Um, I, I got, I, I mean, I got books everywhere. So I guess the, um, in, in, in this moment, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of most, let's see. All right, I can pull some books up. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about reading this. Uh, read, read Until You Understand by Fair Jasmine Griffin. Um, I love Black Lit and, and, and Fair Jasmine Griffin is just incredible. Um, I am excited about reading this, Black Womanist Ethics by this sister right here, Katie Geneva Cannon, the late Katie Geneva Cannon, who is a womanist theologian, was a womanist theologian, so I'm excited about that. Um, I'm also excited about Maggie Nelson's Own Freedom, uh, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Um, let's see, what else am I excited about? Um, ah, okay. I am excited uh, about this. I just got this case for rage. Um, yeah, I've read the um, introduction, um, the preface. I'm on chapter one now, and, and I've really been enjoying this. Uh, let's see. I'm also excited about reading uh, New Black Man by Mark Anthony Neal. I think that's four. I got one more. I got one more, right? Yeah, we'll take it. Or did it? Okay, okay. Um, I got one more. <laughs> dang, that's that's tough too. But I'm also okay. This is the last one I'll do. I'm I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to all that she carried. Um, I read where um, the story starts in South Carolina, and I'm from South Carolina, so I'm in very 
I look forward to reading this book. Um, and it is a National Book Award finalist um, in the nonfiction category. So I am really excited about reading Tia Miles' book, which I'm, once we get off this, I'm going to read for maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, um, and, and enjoy. And no, I, I don't got 20 in me. So I'm probably, hey, I, I ain't even flexing. I'm probably going to be sleeping three. I'm, I'm probably not going to get past two pages. <laughs> well we have uh come to the end yes. of our conversation uh, just thank you so much for spending this hour with us talking about uh your your wonderful book we really encourage everyone uh if you have yet to go pick it up please run do not walk uh, do not tarry. Go straight to your bookstore, your local bookstore, and pick up Shouting in the Fire by Dante Stewart. It will have you on the edge of your seat from, from beginning to end. I, I And a lot of learnings. Like, yeah. just listen to this man talk. The brain is full. Yes. He must, he must write so we can, he can share it in the world. And I cannot wait for whatever else comes in in the future but i know that this will sustain us for for quite some time and you can reread yeah i oh i got oh thank you thank you i got some i got some stuff coming um uh oh oh whatnot i do you know i'm a writer so i write you know i i'm not like i'm not okay i'm not a yeah i'm not a person that's like you know hey you wrote a book now you can chill like yeah i just wrote an essay two days ago called hallelujah anyhow so I, I, I'm just always, I love it. I, there's nothing like writing. It's, this is incredible. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I do got some stuff in the future planned and hopefully, you know, one of the goals though, for real, is that as this book get out in the world, that I'll be able to do this more. I'll be able to speak because a lot of people kind of get in and they, they get introduced to me through my writing, but I really love speaking. I love talking about literature. I love, you know, and I love thinking. I love, I love it. I love talking about thinking and talking about our lives. Yeah, and I love it. I love it. So hopefully, you know, that 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 we can transition and that I can be in conversation with people more and things like that. And more people invite me in, and you'll see me more in public and things like that. So, but until then, you know, I'm gonna be writing, I'm gonna be with my family, I'm gonna be doing school. Uh, and hopefully I put things out in the world. You know, as I have been doing daily things out in the world uh, that people can, you know, resonate with and, and, and benefit from. Well, until we meet again. Yes. Go get you some rest. And I hope your mama, your wife, your kids are all well and safe. And you yes, thank you. Take care of yourself because you got more people to talk to, more people to listen to. You got more to write. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you all. Thank y'all. All right. Take care. Have a good All night. Right. Bye. All right, you too as well. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.